Well, it is uh, great to be with you again. Many thanks for the invitation. As I've said um, a lot uh, over these last couple of months, uh, this is not my favorite thing to do because I like being with people and I like having the opportunity of just interaction, just the, you know, the fellowship and relationships and, and the back and forth and those types of things. But I'm also thankful um, that we get to do this. And thank you for inviting me into your home and, and to Wes. Thank you for allowing me to be a, a part of this series on the, the letters to the churches, Jesus' letters to the churches. We are in Revelation chapter 3 today. The text that we are looking at is Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia, which is found in verses 7 to 13. So if you have your Bibles open, let me read, beginning in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as, as you probably know, uh, the book of Revelation is written in a genre that is referred to as apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature has many unique nuances to it. And, and I'm sure if you've studied it on your own, even if you've just studied it a little bit, you've seen some of the nuances that are found within the within the literature, uh, many images, many symbols, many, many metaphors. You'll see animals come up a lot. You'll see beasts, but you'll see other animals as well. You'll see a heavy use of numbers. Numbers are big in apocalyptic literature. The number six is the number of man. The number of seven speaks of, of creation and completion. On the sixth day, man was created. On the seventh day, God finished his work. The number 10 is big. Number 10 is big in the Bible. 10 commandments, 10 plagues. But the number 10 or multiples thereof come up in the book of Revelation. 12 is big. 12 refers to going back to the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel. But fast forward to the new, the disciples, multiples of 12, 24, 144, 144,000, and so forth. But additionally, and really important for our time today, one of the one of the main primary goals of apocalyptic literature is to bring hope and encouragement. That's its desire. Hope and encouragement, especially to those who are experiencing hardship as they walk in faithfulness to the Lord. In, in Revelation specifically, the main message of it is we win. 
We win. In spite of what's going on currently, our Lord reigns. The lion of the tribe of Judah has been found worthy. We win. Weep no more. For the lion has come and has, has ushered in the plan and the purposes of God. He is on the throne. Now, I, I begin this way because this theme, this goal of bringing hope and encouragement is shown in vibrant colors in Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia. And like his letter to Smyrna, what stands out about this letter is that Jesus brings no commendation, or excuse me, no rebuke. He only brings commendation, just like Smyrna. And there are other similarities between the two churches, two churches as well. For example, they both experience external opposition from those who say they are Jews but are not. You see that in, in verse 9 of chapter 2 and then verse 9 of chapter 3, which is where we are at. But in addition to that, they both lack physical resources because of their poverty. Poverty coming, I think we can assume, because of their faithfulness to Jesus. But in spite of that poverty, what also jumps out about these two churches is, is that they both hold fast to Jesus' name and to his word, which would have been difficult would have been difficult in that time, and the threat of discouragement ever-present. I mean, the, the very fact that Jesus takes the time to write a letter to both churches, letters of encouragement, presupposes the, the danger of discouragement. And so, with that in mind, here's the goal that I have for our time today. I, I want to highlight, I'm going to highlight four ways, if you like taking notes, four ways that Jesus encourages the church in Philadelphia, and in that, I hope to encourage you too. That's my goal. Simple goal today. So let's take a look at the four ways Jesus encourages this church, and by way of, of them, us as well. Here's the first way, and we see it in verse 7. Jesus encourages the church in his description. I know we've read the text, but let me read verse 7 just to remind you of what it says there. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, and here's, here's his description, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Just stop there. Depending on how you want to unpack this verse, Jesus describes himself in either three, four, or five different ways, but I'm going to just laser in and sort of package it in three ways, taking them one at a time. Jesus describes himself first as the holy and true one. He is the holy and true one. In Isaiah 40, 25, it's God, it's God who refers to himself as the holy one, but here, Jesus self-identifies as holy. What, what does holiness speak of? Well, there's a sense of morality that we oftentimes connect to holiness, but it, when we're talking about the holiness of God, we're going far, far deeper and higher and wider than that. Uh, when we talk about the holiness of God, what we're talking about most often and most of all is about the otherness of God. That God stands separate from his creation. He is creator, he is other, and we are creation. Also, in addition to that, holiness talks about us being set apart or things being set apart for God's use. And so Jesus is 
obviously holy. He's, he's, he's creator God. He's obviously morally perfect. He's sinless, but he was also used for God's use. And when we talk about ourselves as being holy, we think about it in similar ter- terms. We're, we're not God, obviously. We're, cre- we're creation. But we have been called to be separate, to, to, to be different. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. But in addition to that, we're also to be set apart for God's use. And when anything is set apart for God's use, it's holy. Moses, take off your sandals. Where you're standing is, is holy ground. Uh, the the uh, items that were used in the temple were referred to as holy items. Anything that is used for God's use is holy. And so Jesus is referred to Here is the holy and true one. Uh, The demons acknowledged as much in Luke chapter 4 when asking of Jesus, "What, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the holy one of God. True, that word true as it's used here refers to that which is genuine, the opposite of fake, faith, fake, excuse me, which stands in stark contrast to those in verse 9 who call themselves Jews but are not. And then Jesus goes on to say, but, but lie. Jesus, in contrast, is the true one. Jesus is also described as he being the one who holds or has the key of David. Uh, The key of David is a a reference to the messianic lineage of Jesus. For example, in Isaiah 22, verse 22, we read there, I will place on his shoulders, speaking of the Messiah to come, that being Jesus, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can can open, which is the third description of Jesus as I package them together, that Jesus is one who, who, is open, who opens and no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open, because he has the key to the house of David. You know, you don't hear about it as much today, or at least I don't, but when I was growing up, I would every once in a while hear about celebrities and dignitaries that were given keys to the city. It's a It's a practice that actually goes back to to medieval times when cities literally would have walls around them and and doors that you could lock. If if you've ever been to old Quebec City, you know what I'm talking about. There's a wall around old Quebec City and actually doors that remain open, but if they wanted to, they could close them. Getting a key, receiving a key to a city brought authority and access to the person the key was given. That's the idea here. Jesus has authority, he has access, he has position, he has power, but not simply to a a city, but to the house of David, to the messianic kingdom that comes through the line of David, that eternal kingdom, that everlasting kingdom of God, which put yourself in the place of the church in Philadelphia. This would have brought great encouragement and hope to them in light of what they were facing. Because of their relationship with Jesus, I I believe, I think, we're to assume things would have been extremely hard for them. Doors would have been slammed in their faces. Access to the things that they had access to before coming to Christ, no longer there. 
relationships strained, perhaps people questioning their sanity, perhaps even physical harm, and, and therefore I'm sure they fought angst, and, and I'm sure they fought fear, and I'm sure they were tempted at times at least to give up. But here, Jesus, and this is so sweet, Jesus steps in and he, and he writes them a letter. And he says to them, I'm the true one. I'm the true one. And you can believe and trust in me in spite of what you are experiencing. I have all authority. I have the key. I have access. I have position. I can open and no one can shut. I can shut and no one can open. I have all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And what I have opened to you is access into the kingdom. And what I have shut is the threat of judgment. Just look at the second part of verse 8 again. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So that's our first encouragement by way of Jesus, through his description. But secondly, Jesus encourages the church in his knowing in his knowing. Verse 8, this is why I say that, begins with something that Jesus actually says in several other letters in Revelation 2 and 3. And that is, he starts verse 8 with the phrase, I know, I know your works. I know. And how does he know? Well, if you double back to chapter 1 and take a look at the description of Jesus there, he knows because he walks among the lampstands which are the seven churches. And he, he holds in his right hand the seven angels or seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches. And he also has eyes like flames of fire. And so nothing is hidden from him. He is the God who sees. He is the God who knows. He, he walks among this lampstand too. He, he walks among all lampstands because he is the head of the church. He knows, he sees. And that should encourage us today, as it would then, because we so often have moments, don't we, in, in our lives, family situations or ministry situations where we, we wonder if anybody does know and see. And Jesus says, I know. I, I, know, I, I know and I see the things that nobody else does great encouragement in this. But, but I want to take this a little bit further and build upon it by pointing out a third way that Jesus encourages the church. And again, it's built on this second, and that is Jesus encourages the church in his recognition. Now, now let me explain what I mean by that. Notice what Jesus says in the second half of verse 8. Jesus says there, I know that you have but little power, and yet, Oh, I love this. I, I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. I, I want to dig deeper into this, and I want to camp here a little bit, because when I read that, when I've meditated on this, studied it, just spent some time in it, there's something kind-hearted and compassionate in this that I love. There, there's... There's this, it just seems like this sweet recognition 
of not only their plight, but also, I think, their internal makeup. I know that you have but little power. There's sympathy in this, which, as we know, is the type of Savior that Jesus is. Uh, A a very well-known text coming out of Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews writes that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses or our little power, perhaps, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And, and what, is, what is the result for us in knowing this sympathetic and sinless high priest? Well, the next verse answers the question in Hebrews 4.15. We can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of, of need. Draw near, he, he, hear, hear what is being said, draw near with confidence. Why? Because Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who sits on a throne of grace. And Jesus' sinlessness provides the remedy for our sinfulness. His is a sympathy offered with a gracious remedy. It, it's so precious. And we taste that here. Going back to Revelation chapter 3. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and my name. This is commendation. This is not a rebuke. I I know you have this, and it's little. But you've, you've kept going. You haven't been ashamed of me and my name and my gospel. What, what is this but little power, by the way? Well, no doubt it speaks at least in part of their lack of status in Philadelphia because of the name of Christ. Like I shared just a moment ago, lack of access, lack of relationships, lack of stat, lack of money, lack of invitations, maybe not getting invited to the same parties, maybe losing work, maybe mocked. Or worse than that, coming as the result of Jesus' word and name. But I also believe it speaks to the state of their their internal disposition. I think they were feeling weak and less than powerful. And, And Jesus said, I know, I know. Just notice what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, I, I'm, I'm coming soon. And there is a sense that Jesus can say this to every generation. I'm coming soon. You'll see me soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You, you see, I don't, I don't see this call to hold fast what they have referring to access or position, but to their faith. But little power and trust in Jesus. Hold fast what you have in me. Hold fast, even though you may feel like you're losing everything. Don't give up. Keep running. I am coming soon. Again, it's precious. It's sympathetic. Jesus sees and he he knows. Let me ask you something, question just to throw out. 
What's better? Uh, a strong faith in a weak Jesus or a weak faith in a strong Jesus? Here, here's why I ask. So what's better? Strong faith in a weak Jesus or weak faith in a strong Jesus? I ask because in Luke chapter 17, the disciples ask Jesus, really great request. They come to Jesus and they ask Jesus to increase their faith. Great request. Increase our faith, Jesus. Jesus answers by saying to them, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. That's his answer. What's, what's the problem with the answer? The problem is, it makes no sense. It makes, it makes zero sense. The disciples say, we want greater faith, and Jesus says, the size of your faith doesn't matter. That's his answer. Why? Well, because the size of our faith doesn't matter if it's directed to a strong source. And because the disciples were seeking to increase their faith for faith's sake, and faith's sake alone, Jesus answers as he does. Let me be clear. You can read through all four Gospels, and Jesus never commends faith for faith's sake, but faith of any size he does when it's directed to him. So the question is, What's the purpose of having a strong faith then? Well, the answer is it makes the ride easier. Uh, I'll borrow this. I am borrowing this illustration, but let's just say you and me getting on a plane. We're flying from Vancouver to Toronto. You're a frequent flyer. You know how planes work. You know the how great pilots are, you've done this a million times, you get on a plane, you're actually looking forward to just kicking back, reading a book, maybe having something to eat, catching some sleep, but I come onto that same plane ride, I know nothing about planes, this is the first time, all I've heard about is planes crashing, I don't know anything about pilots, I've seen some bad movies that depict pilots as drunks, I don't know how this is going to go. And we both take the same trip get on the plane, I'm white-knuckling it, every bump, I'm going through the roof while you're nodding off and sleeping. Here's the thing, however, we both get to the same destination. We both arrive at the same point, but the journey has been entirely different. Entirely different. We actually see this illustrated, just so you go, ah, I'm not sure I agree with you, Norm. We actually see this illustrated in the Gospels. Jesus gets on a boat with the disciples, and he says, guys, we're going to the other side. And they start the journey. Storm comes up. Turbulence of sorts in the water. What did the disciples do? They freak out. Where's Jesus? Sleeping. And here's the thing. They both get to the same place. But Jesus looks at them and says, do you still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? which is what the opposite of faith is. It's fear. It, it lacks trust. It doesn't believe in the promises of the Lord to get to the other side. Hmm. I understand this. That's, by the way, by the way, that's why there's a lot of discussion about the importance of, of, 
of big faith. And look, I'm not downplaying the importance of faith, but one of the things that interests, it's very interesting. If you've ever studied through the book of Hebrews, you, go, you get to Hebrews 11, right? You know Hebrews 11, it's the hall of faith. Adam's fa- or Abraham's faith, Moses' faith, Ab- and so on. Great faith of the great men and women of the scriptures. We have this chapter of these individuals who depict this great faith, 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 faith. Get to chapter 12, and what is the instruction at the beginning of chapter 12? Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's where our eyes need to gaze. Why? Because he's the author and perfecter of what? Our faith. See, understand, whether you have faith like a mustard seed or faith like the seed of a palm tree, which can weigh at times up to 40 pounds, if either is directed towards Jesus, access to the kingdom is yours. Any of you feeling like you have but little power right now? Feeling spent? Feeling weak? Mustard seed-like? Wondering if it's worth it? I get it. I get it. But can I implore you? In fact, can I ask that you allow Jesus to implore you, hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have. Look at Jesus. He doesn't despise but little faith and little power, but sympathizes. He sees but little power and will respond to it with meekness and a lowliness of heart. He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't snuff out smoldering wicks. And therefore, don't run from him, run to him, and pray your feelings his way. Don't ignore your feelings, but don't succumb to your feelings, but pray your feelings. Which leads to the final way that Jesus encourages the church, and that is Jesus encourages the church in his promises. His first promise that I'm going to highlight is seen in verse 9. Let me read the verse again for you. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This is a, a promise of victory. The church's enemies, apparently winning now, will one day be humbled and defeated. Uh, There will be a time where, where every cry for justice will be answered. And the blood of every martyr avenged. The second promise is seen in verse verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. If if you believe in in the idea of a rapture, uh, the rapture, if you don't know what I'm talking about, is the idea that Christians will be exempted from severe tribulation and will be whisked away beforehand. If you do hold to a rapture, then you love verse 10. Verse, you, you, you've got verse 10 memorized. You've gone there. 
many times perhaps to try to defend, defend your position on the rapture. So, some who hold to this idea take the promise here in verse 10 being that, that there is an hour of trial coming that is horrifyingly exceptional and that Jesus promises an exemption from it for the church. Coming out of this verse. The problem with this view is that this promise, if that's true, would not have been a real promise to this church. Unless you say that because they died before this trial, this hour of trial came, that they were saved from it in that way. Could be, I guess. However, if you take this letter as being read by a real church in in real time, going through real life and and death situations, and that this is a real promise to them and to every church thereafter, like Dunbar Heights, as I do, then what is the promise to them and to all of us today and for every church over the last 2,000 years? Well, let's see if we can figure out an answer. And again, I want you to be encouraged in this. I believe we get the beginning of an answer in John 17. When, John, when Jesus prays there in the high priestly prayer, prayer in verse, seven, verse 15, excuse me, I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Look back at verse 10 in our text. I will keep you from the hour. There we have the promise of Jesus, but here we have a prayer of Jesus to the Father. I, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I'm, I'm sending them into the world in the, in the same way that you sent me into the world, but Father, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Now we know that when Jesus says this, he can't mean that the church will be kept from suffering. It can't be. After all, great suffering has been experienced by the church over the last 2,000 years. And and besides, Jesus never promised that the church would be kept from suffering at all. In fact, only the opposite. He does, however, however, promise something else to the church. He promises that his followers will be protected from falling away. He actually hints at this. In Matthew 24, which is a great apocalyptic sermon by Jesus, in Matthew 24, verse 24, he says this about the end of the age. False Christ and false prophets will arise and will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, and hear this, if possible, even the elect. So what Jesus is saying is there will be deception by way of individuals, false Christ, false prophets, and what they will say will sound so good, so appealing, so convincing, it will be so so wonderful being heard by, by so many because it's packaged so nicely that it will be even possible, Jesus says, if possible, it will deceive even the elect. But it's not possible. The elect can't be deceived. For what God begins, he brings to completion, Philippians 1.6. 
And those he calls, he glorifies, Romans, Romans 8.30. And, and nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, even false prophets and false Christs, Romans 8.35. And so what is this hour of trial that we will be kept from? My opinion, I, I take it as a promise of Jesus' assurance and strength in the midst of tribulation. Not, not a promise that exempts us from tribulation, but ongoing perseverance and faith through it. Because what is the ultimate goal of Satan that we are to be kept from? What is Satan's goal for the world? to see people not come to Jesus, to be deceived. And Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from that. I'm going to keep you from that. This is why Jude wraps up his letter, great benediction in Jude verses 24 and 25, just one chapter. He states, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He will keep us from stumbling. It's a sweet promise. Let me begin wrapping up by, by looking quickly at a final series of promises coming out of verse 12. By the way, before I move on, if, if you have questions about the rapture and all of that, just get in touch with Wes. He would love to talk to you all about it, I'm sure. But in verse 12, we see some final promises, final promises there. Let me, let me just walk through the verse a little bit by a little bit. Here's the first I will make the one who overcomes a pillar in the temple of my God. Um, what a pillar was, a, a pillar in, the build, in a building or a temple at that time served to honor a distinguished, distinguished person. Um, Peter, James, and John, for example, were regarded as pillars in the early church. Here, Jesus promises that the church will have a place of honor in his kingdom to come and forever. The second promise coming out of verse 12 is never again will he go out of it. I will write the name of my God upon him. Here Jesus promises that he will place the name of God on his followers. Later John elaborates by saying that the names of the Lamb and the Father are written on the foreheads of the saint and we will be forever in his kingdom. You can look at that in chapter 14 verse 1 and chapter 22 verse and then finally, the last promise coming out of verse 12 is that the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God, out of heaven, from my God, up, upon him, upon the church, I will write my own new name. Again, sweet promises. Believers um, in the city of Antioch were those who were first called Christian, Christ ones, or little Christ. But it was a, a, a name of mockery. It was a, a name of derision 
But this new name, the, the name, the new name of Jesus on us will no longer be mocked, but honored and revered and forever. So there you go. In a time where I think we could all use a little encouragement and some perhaps needing it more than others, be encouraged by Jesus' description and his knowing and his recognition and his promises. Be encouraged. That's the purpose. Be encouraged. He knows. He sees. One final comment as I close. Evidence of the Christian church in the city of Philadelphia are many. Um, and, and the reason why is for the church remained faithful to Jesus in the city of Philadelphia for centuries. Uh, even when Islam, Islam became the, the dominant religion of the area, in, in the first part of the 20th century, Five Christian churches were, were still flourishing in Philadelphia. And what stands out about that is that of the seven churches, only one, the church in Philadelphia, has spanned the centuries. Just one. A amazing what but little power in almighty Jesus can accomplish. Fix your eyes on him. Hold fast. Don't give up. He's coming soon. Let's pray. Oh. Jesus, I... We worship you. I worship you. For, for being a holy and true one, the, the one who has all authority, the one who has opened the way, who is the way into the kingdom for, for us and, and nothing, nothing can ever take that away. What you open, you open. No one will be, be able to shut it again. Um, we thank you. We, we thank you for responding to us with sympathy to our weaknesses, to our but little power, um, for, for knowing, knowing not just what people see, but what's going on internally when we feel um, weak and we wonder if it's worth it and and yet, you come, you write us letters every day. You write letters to us every day. Say, see, I know. I'm for you. I'm coming for you. And so, Father, as, as I close this time, I thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, I thank you for coming. And I, I thank you for sending the Spirit who has drawn us to you. I thank you for all of that. But would you... I'm just thinking about the people listening to this, will listen to this. Um, I pray if there are people feeling and, and struggling with discouragement, I, I pray that they would, again, turn to you, fix their eyes on you, um, find grace, 
that you promised to give in times of need. Um, Father, the world in which we live um, brings lots of discouragement, especially now. There's so much noise out there. There's so much noise. There's so much anger, so much vitriol, so much fear, so much going on. We, we live in a Philadelphia right now. It's hard, to, it's hard to remain true to your name and your word, but we want to because we love you, so help us and forgive us for those times. Forgive us for those times when you've promised to get us to the other side where we doubt you. We would get fear-filled. Help us. Remind us to turn our eyes back to you always. We love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. We give all honor, all glory to you. And I pray for these things in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen.